I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew 26. We're going to be looking at a lengthy passage this morning. You'll need a Bible to follow along. So these brothers have some. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention and they'll give you one of those Bibles. It's our gift to you. Keep that Bible. Bring it back with you next week. And each week we want everyone to own a copy of God's word. Matthew 26. That we live in a victimization culture is something that's scarcely in dispute. It's rare in our society to hear anyone simply stand up and take responsibility for his or her actions without evasion, without blame shifting or rationalization. And that tendency has a long and inglorious history because it's part of our sinful nature going all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the first sin by The representative man and woman that God made representing us doing what we would have done in Adam and Eve. Our culture has perfected this approach by the use of experts who are ready and willing to assure us it's not our fault. Psychiatrist Dr. Carl Menninger documented the early stages of that trend in his book in 1973 titled Whatever Became of Sin. You see, the Bible teaches that we live with the effects of our fallenness In two categories, suffering and sin. There are real and many circumstances in which we're victimized by the sin of others or just by living in a sin-cursed world that is riven with disease and disaster that touch all of us. Last week, we looked at that category. We looked at that category of fallenness in our series that's titled, What's God Got to Do With It? And we've covered what's on top of the outline that's inserted in your program. If you haven't gotten that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out so that you can follow along. But you notice the top portion is grayed out and filled in. We looked at that last week. In answer to the question in the title of this specific message, the series is, what's God got to do with it? These two messages are, what's God going to do with it? We saw last week that God will produce good when we are victims, that he's at work when we both trust him and even when we become angry and bitter. That's all true. And being victimized by suffering at the hands of a person or by sickness or by the sudden loss of a job or a myriad other ways. We saw last week that kind of thing in the lives of Joseph and Naomi. But friends, here's the thing. In keeping with the cultural tendency to make everyone a victim, even Christians fall prey to that temptation and we seek to move our situation from one category to the other. Specifically, we try to run from our sin by labeling it a form of suffering. We speak of our emotional pain and we justify turning from God to substances because we're, quote, medicating the pain. A more accurate way to describe that would be, I experienced victimization, but instead of turning to God, I turned to something else. I've often heard people speak of some sin that they committed as, believe it or not, as God's will. Since God is sovereign and nothing happens outside his will, and so what I did was in his will, they reason. But what they've deliberately forgotten is that God's sovereign will include things that are not his moral will. Sin is never God's moral will. 
thankfully, the Bible teaches he overrules it in the affairs of humanity and he can and he does use it for ultimate good. But the perpetrators of the evil are still responsible, including you and me. This desire to run from responsibility for our sin is especially troubling since it strikes at the very heart of Christian belief. The gospel is the good news that God has saved us, friends, from our sins. Not our faults or some other minimization. And to the extent that we minimize sin, hear this, we minimize grace. When we fail to own up to our sin, we have no way to do what the Bible says and change our mind. That's literally what the word repent means, to change your mind, a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. Without repentance, there can be no salvation and there can be no growth in the Christian life. Now, thankfully, that's the cultural trend, but thankfully there are exceptions to this. In March of this year, I attended the Shepherds Conference at John MacArthur's Church in California. Our pastoral staff is planning to go again next year. One of the speakers at the conference was someone that I had not heard of, but that John MacArthur introduced, saying that he, MacArthur, listens to this man preach every Sunday afternoon. He delivered quite a sermon. This summer, that preacher, Art Azurdia, posted the following on his blog after he had dealt with the issues the post addresses in person with all involved. It's lengthy, but I think it's worth the time to read. To my wife and family members, the elders and congregation of Trinity Church, the faculty of Western Seminary, and friends and colleagues both near and abroad, someone very wise once said, pastors must be the chief repenters in a congregation of repenters. It is important that this proves to be the case now, not because I haven't yet repented, but because my sin is of such a nature that I need to express my repentance to you. Several years ago, prior to the inception of Trinity Church, I strayed from my wedding vows, breaking the covenantal bond I made to my dear wife 36 years ago. More recently, I again violated my marriage commitment. In both instances, I engaged in adulterous relationships that were nothing less than acts of defiance to the will of my God and Father, as well as expressions of profound ingratitude for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that I prize so dearly. I confess this sin and I take full responsibility for it. There are no justifications, excuses, or rationalizations for my behavior. I, in acts of idolatry, chose sin over God. I am profoundly ashamed at the enormity of my rebellion, as well as the hypocrisy of exercising ministry while cloaking my sin in the shadows. I am broken by the magnitude of my offenses to God, the devastation I've inflicted upon my wife, the grief brought to bear upon my children, and the disappointment I've produced among the people with whom I've been privileged to share ministry. Though it is entirely undeserved, I humbly ask you to forgive me for my betrayal of your trust and friendship. With each passing day, the fresh awareness of this betrayal breaks my heart in greater and deeper ways, leaving me with nothing but a hope in the accomplishments of the cross to which I desperately cling. Despite the profound grief and shame, I'm deeply thankful to my Heavenly Father for graciously exposing this sin and forcing me to turn from it. The promise that He chastises those He loves so that His children might share in His holiness gives me hope and comfort. 
My present and painful circumstances have become to both my wife and me the gracious verifications of God's fatherhood and my spiritual paternity. Because of my sin, I have disqualified myself from the office of elder. Further, I have no desire to pursue ministry of any kind. My focus is entirely directed at making right the very thing I have ignored for too long, the well-being of our marriage. This long-term process has already commenced in meetings with experienced counselors and under their supervision will be extended to include a team of qualified people who will also contribute to the reestablishment and strengthening of our relationship. This reprioritized commitment will require us to relocate in large part as a response to my wife's desires and needs and also to make ourselves available to care fully for my wife's elderly parents. Consequently, she and I now resign our membership at Trinity Church, freeing the elders to give their entire attention to carefully shepherding the congregation through this season of challenge. Likewise, we're choosing to relinquish the remaining balance of the severance package so kindly extended to us by the elders as to free Trinity Church from the burden of caring for our financial responsibilities. I am certain that my sin has brought about waves of divergent emotions in many of you, hurt, confusion, sorrow, anger. All of these are appropriate responses to my failures that your Heavenly Father understands. Moment by moment, I feel the heavy weight of inflicting them upon you. If, however, I may appeal to your mercy in Jesus Christ, dear friends, allow me to ask four things of you. Please direct your anger and frustration at me while extending love and support to my children who have responded to my repentance and confession with kindness and compassion, and especially to my wife who's revealed the depth of the gospel's influence in her life by extending undeserved grace and forgiveness to me. Lori continues to display the likeness of her Heavenly Father in real and palpable expressions that overwhelm me with tearful humility and contrition. Though I have failed her egregiously, I love her deeply, And desperately, with God's help, our family will survive this season and eventually thrive for God's glory. Secondly, please pray for the elders of the church. I've wounded these brothers deeply, and now a great and unexpected responsibility rests upon their shoulders. Owing to the gospel and the restorative power of the Holy Spirit, however, they can lead Trinity Church into a stronger and more vibrant congregational life that will bear a unique and powerful testimony to the gospel and what it accomplishes. Thirdly, please pray for the congregation of Trinity Church. This is an extraordinary gathering of diverse people who are consumed with the priorities of worshiping the triune God and declaring the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. My wife and I have been the consistent recipients of her great love, support, and generosity. Beyond all compare, these eight years at Trinity Church have been our most joyous days in 36 years of ministry. Fourthly, never doubt the gospel of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I have failed you profoundly. And I do plead for your forgiveness. I love you, albeit with a love that has been marred by great failure. But the gospel of Jesus Christ will never fail you. The fact is, it's the greatest glory. Its greatest glory proves most obvious in the context of sin and failure. In this case, my own great sin and failure. We, in our brokenness and humiliation, now need your prayers. God bless you. Art. Zerdia. Very rare, isn't it? The very right, very needed. Today we're going to, friends, together look at how we can learn to avoid sin, but also how to handle sin when we do. Let's pray and ask God to help us. 
Father, thank you for bringing us here now. We ask you, Lord, to speak to us from your word. Thank you for giving it to us to guide our path, to light our way. Help us to be people, Lord, who wisely look therein, appropriate its truths, apply them to our lives. Lord, help us to learn from the example of others so that we don't need to repeat their sins and failures. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we said in that outline last week that you have in front of you that God will produce good when we are victims and now today. Secondly, God will produce good when we are guilty. So here now we are talking about problems initiated by our choices that are contrary to God's will. In other words, we're talking about sin. And God will produce this good when we are guilty in two sets of circumstances. The first is when we repent. The example of Peter that we read about that we'll read about in the passage to which I've asked you to turn, serves as a tutorial for us, a tutorial on the anatomy of sin. That is, many of us are familiar with the story of Peter's denial of the Lord the night before Jesus was crucified, but too often we read that and we think that it just sort of happened out of the blue. Peter had a particularly bad day or a lapse in judgment. But friends, our thoughts precede our actions, and our thoughts are the fuel that ignite the flames of sin. Our thoughts precede our actions, and our thoughts are the fuel that ignite the flame of our sin. So before we look at Peter's sin and its outcome, let's be instructed instructed and warned regarding what brought it about. And it goes back to verse 31. Of chapter 26. Jesus told them this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen I will go ahead of you into Galilee. You see friends our sin is never the end of God's story. Jesus has predicted that they're going to sin, all 11 of the apostles, not just Peter. But Jesus is saying to them in verse 32 that although you fail me, I will not fail you. So one of the things that we must constantly bear in mind, that even in the midst of our sin, God remains faithful. Even in the midst of our betrayal of him, he will never betray our trust placed in him. That's why the Bible says... In Hebrews 13, famously, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, that's a quotation. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And it says God has said. Where had God said that? It goes all the way back to the first part of your Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 31. And as God's people, the people of Israel, were preparing to enter the promised land, and there were going to be many challenges with regard to that. They were going to have to conquer the peoples that were there. They were going to have to trust God in that. It's in that context that God tells them in the midst of all the dangers and the deterrence to obedience that could go with it, that I am with you and I will be working through you. Dependence on the Lord, friends, is always required for our spiritual stability. In Luke's account of this event with regard to Peter and his failure, In Luke's account, he quotes Jesus as saying to Peter this. 
Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, and he specifically then notes Peter by name, that your faith may not fail. Now we know from the story that Peter's faith will fail temporarily because Jesus has said so, and we know that story. But Peter's faith does not ultimately fail, not because of Peter, but because of Christ. And that's always the case with us as well. You must always remember that he's the one that upholds us. And remember that even in our sin, if we belong to him, he does that very thing. Jesus said all 11 of you will fail, and indeed they did. Down in verse 56, it says, all the disciples deserted him and fled. But none of them did that more spectacularly than Peter. And the focus turns to him because Peter speaks up and says in verse 33, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Jesus has just said you will. And Peter says, I never will. Brings to mind this famous passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That says, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And pride goes before destruction, Proverbs says, a haughty spirit before a fall. Jesus has said you're going to fail, but the focus remains on on Peter, even though they're all going to do that. Jesus addresses him directly then in verse 34. Truly, I tell you. Jesus raises the gravity In the King James, verily, verily. Amen, amen. Those are the Greek words. Focus your attention on this. Jesus said this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. All the other disciples said the same. Peter's overconfidence is breathtaking. He directly contradicts the Lord. Jesus says, you're going to fail me. And Peter says, I never will. But he doesn't leave it at that. He takes matters into his own hands as the drama of the Lord's suffering and his crucifixion begins. After Jesus went into a private place in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, he asked the apostles to do the same, but they slept instead. If you read on, that's what it tells you. And at that time, Judas who betrays the Lord, arrives with a contingent of Roman guards. And Peter impulsively inserts him, asserts himself again. Notice verse 50. The end of verse 50. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? One commentator says this, Peter is so confident, he's so defiant, and now we find him acting absolutely on his own. Verse 51 says it was one of those who was with Jesus, but the Apostle John tells us specifically that it was Peter. And Peter drew out a sword and really started through the whole group. The first guy in the line, we're told in the Gospel of John, was named Malchus. He was the servant of the high priest and he tried to cut off his head and he missed only to cut off a piece of his ear. 
So he took a swing. The guy ducked and he got a piece of ear. But this is not acting under the instruction of Jesus. This is not what Jesus wanted. Had Peter forgotten the several times in which Jesus had previously said, I must go to Jerusalem, I must be taken captive, I must lay down my life and then rise again? Had Peter forgotten that? Did he not want to listen to that? We know that he protested and he said, let it not be so, Lord. But even then he was letting Satan speak through him. Why couldn't he accept what the will of the Lord was? But Peter would not. He acted impulsively. And so controlled by his own ego, his supposed courage and feeling somewhat invincible since Jesus was standing right next to him. He knew that Jesus had the power to destroy them all. Because he knew that he was standing with one who had that ultimate power. He had no fear in that situation. Because he knew if the Lord could save him in another situation, remember when he was going to drown in the water, the Lord could certainly deliver him now. And so here's Peter feeling invincible. And this just confirmed in his own mind the invincibility that was characteristic of his own heart. He took out a sword. He started through the whole group and the Lord stopped him and said, put that sword away unless you want to die by the sword. In other words, if you take a life, my law says that your life is to be taken by the sword. And don't you know that if I needed to, I could get these 12 legions of angels from the father. But how would then prophecy be fulfilled? In other words, Peter, you are out of sync with the plan. Put the sword away. So when Peter here is courage but misguided. It's zeal, but it's misdirected. Here is somebody who's so confident and so defined in terms of listening and hearing what the Lord is saying, and yet who is so zealous that he acts in an impulsive way that's completely at odds with the plan of God. He's trying to live up to his press releases. He's trying to show everybody that he's as courageous as he claims to be, but he's completely out of sync with the plan of God. And so the Lord is going to grant Satan's request to temporarily lift his protective hand and allow Peter to drift in his natural direction. Satan has asked to sift you. The Lord is going to temporarily grant that request and allow Peter to go his own natural way, his own sinful way, in order to teach him a lesson, but also to prepare him for the future. Now, this is Peter's sin. This is the way Peter wants to go. But the Lord, the sovereign Lord, overrules and uses it, as we will see. And Jesus is arrested and taken to the home of the high priest for interrogation. Peter was in the courtyard of the high priest's home. And look at what verse 69 says. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. (laughs) Now, this is the same Peter who just a short time earlier fight to the death and now he's scared to death. And this is what that warning that we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, be careful that you don't fall, is all about. You see, friends, you can be standing just fine, even standing impressively in one set of circumstances, but then when put in another situation, it reveals other areas of our hearts that we didn't even know were there. 
Peter never in a million years thought he'd be capable of denying the Lord for his own safety. But in that situation, somehow this new area of his heart was exposed. Verse 71. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. With an oath, that is, I swear. Possibly on God's name. That I don't know the man. One has observed. This provides great insight into spiritual character. The thing that reveals character is involuntary response, not planned response. Your character isn't manifest by what you prepare to do. It's manifest by what you're not prepared for and how you react to that, that involuntary reaction. That shows your character. We can all plan for those spiritual experiences to some extent when we're at church or when we're at community group, for example. But it's those things that catch us off guard and reveal the real weakness of our heart that tell us who we really are. Peter was caught off guard. He couldn't get prepared for this one. And in his involuntary reaction, it was one that showed his character to be weak and sinful. And it did not come out of nowhere. It was the result of a strong ego, an unwillingness to listen to the word of the Lord, a failure to pray, acting upon his own impulse, independent of the purpose and plan of God. He was on his own, and on his own, he was weak, just like all of us. Two denials down, one to go. And that's found in verse 73. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Now, it says here, those standing there said that. But there was actually a spokesman for the group because in John's account, in John chapter 18, he says that the one who asked this was a relative of Malchus, the one whose head Peter had tried to sever and whose ear he cut off. So the guy who now comes and says this is related to that guy who had been injured by Peter. So that adds to the pressure. And Peter buckles in verse 74. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them. I don't know the man. John MacArthur says of this, the Greek word translated curses is a very, very strong word. It means to pronounce death upon yourself at the hand of God if you're lying. May God kill me and damn me if I'm not speaking the truth. It's the most serious taking of the Lord's name in vain imaginable. May God destroy me if I don't speak the truth. And the word for swore means to pledge your truthfulness. So on the positive side, he's saying, I pledge my truthfulness. On the negative side, may God damn me. May God kill me if I lie. He calls down the damning power of God on his own head if he's not telling the truth. That's how far he's gone. He's lost all fear of God, all sense of reality in this series of intense events. First, a single lie, and then to cover up a single lie, a double lie, and then to cover up a double lie, a flurry of lies with curses and swearing. Verse 74 says he began to swear, began to curse, which is to say it doesn't just happen once. He began it and must have had some continuity. He kept it up. 
Maybe the accusations kept flying. And here is our dear, precious Lord, who's been rejected by the world, sold by one of his disciples, and now denied again and again with curses and swearing by the leader of his own group. Jesus was truly a man of sorrows and betrayed. Peter has gone to the very pit. You really couldn't get any lower than this. Verse 74. Immediately a rooster crowed. And then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows. You will disown me three times. Friends, the story of Peter's denials is a cautionary tale for all of us. A Christian person can fall very far. A true Christian will come back as the Lord convicts and pursues, but until that happens, we'll be miserable and we may cause much harm to ourselves and others. The sooner the repentance, the better. Peter had been given unimaginable gifts from the Lord. He was chosen by the Lord to be taught by him and observe him with the other apostles for three years. He was part of a select group of the twelve and the leader of a still smaller group of of that group included John and James, the three of them, Jesus' closest intimates. Peter was told by Jesus, you are Peter, a name meaning rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And yet he finds himself at the point of no return from a human standpoint. He finds himself at a place he never thought he could possibly be, and he doesn't know how he got there. You ever thought that? How did it get like this? Where did it begin? How did I get here? It's like someone swimming in the lake, told to stay close to the shore, but they're gradually and imperceptibly taken further and further out by the undertow. Next thing you know, you're out in deep waters that you can't return from. He's allowed himself to be taken in by what the Bible calls in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, sin's deceitfulness. His self-confidence, his defiance, his prayerlessness, his impulsiveness have put him far from the Lord and there would be no return, none apart from the grace of God. Some of us have been there. Some of you are there. And all of us could be there. The Bible is clear and direct with regard to what we are to do when we sin. We own it. We confess it. We repent of it. The Bible says that Peter did so. The end of verse 75. He went outside and he wept bitterly. And this is what the Bible calls in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, godly sorrow. A sorrow that's born of a full and deep understanding and remorse for failing the Lord, as opposed to worldly sorrow, which is sad for being caught. Or over the consequences for ourselves or others. Those are important, but nothing is more important than what, than what God has to do with it. What does God have to do with our sin? God's the most important person in every sin we commit. Every sin we commit is first and foremost against God. We are to do that. We are to confess and repent. But even when we do what is right, our actions are not determinative. 
Our actions affect nothing ultimately, friends, without God. There's what we're to do, but the most important question always, as in the title of today's message, is this. What is God going to do with that? In this case, what's God going to do with our sin and our confession and our repentance? And that's the beautiful and hopeful part of this otherwise horribly horrendous story. What's God going to do with our sin? Well, fast forward a few days after Jesus' resurrection, and in the words of one author, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, after the resurrection, orchestrated a special event just for his weak but beloved disciple. It occurred after Peter and several of his friends had gone fishing all night and they had caught nothing. A man from the shore asked if they had any fish. When they said no, he encouraged them to cast their net on the right side of the boat. They did so and they were unable to draw the net back because of the great number of fish. The Apostle John then said, it is the Lord. And then Peter, in typical Peter fashion, couldn't wait until the boat reached land. Instead, he wrapped his outer garment around him and he plunged into the sea. This is all recorded in John 21, where the Bible says Jesus shared a dinner of fish with his apostles. And then in John 21 and verse 9, it says, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Peter, Do you love me more than these? Now, when he asked, Do you love me more than these? These may be referring to the fish or the boats. After all, that is Peter's livelihood, but it probably refers to the other apostles. Peter, do you really love me more than the other apostles? Because that's what you said before you denied me. Remember that? Even if everybody else, not me. Do you love me more than these? Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? And each time Peter answered in the affirmative. So why in that Famous incident at the end of the Gospel of John. Does Jesus ask him full t- three times? Hear this. Jesus was publicly in front of the other apostles, restoring Peter fully. He denied him three times, and Jesus says, Feed my sheep three times. I'm restoring you to what I've called you to do. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says the three questions Jesus addressed to Peter stand in contrast to Peter's three denials. The disciples were no doubt aware of Peter's denial of Jesus and the commission Jesus renewed with him in their presence would reassure them of Peter's place among them. And sure enough, that's what happened. Within a few weeks, it would be Peter. On the day of Pentecost, who preached the very first Christian sermon, and for the first years of the church in Acts chapters 1 through 12, it is Peter who's the primary person the Lord uses to spread his work. Our God is a gracious God, friends. What, he's going to, what is he going to do with it? He's ready to forgive and restore. Peter's sin was as horrible as one could imagine. Imagine, if the Lord will forgive and restore Peter, he will do the same with you, whatever you have done. But you must cast it upon him. You cannot carry it around lest it crush you. Some people fail 
ask forgiveness, and then continue to beat themselves up over what they did. They replay the event over and over. They question whether God has truly forgiven them. Peter didn't do any of that. Once his failure was behind him, he accepted Christ's forgiveness. He moved on. Though he was guilty and he was responsible for his poor choices, he responded well. God will produce good when we are guilty. He's at work when we repent, as Peter did. And he's at work when we run. He's at work when we repent, and he's at work when we run. Author Steve Vyers describes the story of one who ran from God for over a year. He says, regrettably, we all have had times when we sinned and we compounded the problem by responding with additional thoughts, words, or actions that displeased God. That point would not be hard to prove from King David's life. One name immediately brings a specific story to mind, Bathsheba. Because this is a familiar story to most, then we can just summarize it here. And a few weeks ago, we talked a bit about David's story. But it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I encourage you to refresh your memory on that uh, this week. But we're told on a sultry evening, King David walked out on his rooftop. He saw on another rooftop the wife of one of his generals bathing. It would have been wonderful if David had shielded his eyes and he cried out to God for protection from that temptation. But he sent for her. He had sex with her and she became pregnant. Unfortunately, he dealt with his guilt by trying to cover his tracks. He brought Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, home from battle, assuming he and Bathsheba would enjoy sexual relations as husband and wife. And then the, quote, problem of the pregnancy would be covered up. When that failed, David sent Uriah back to the battlefront and arranged with his commander to position Uriah at the worst part of the battle so he would be killed. And then David brought Bathsheba to his house and she became his wife. Unless there be any doubt that David responded poorly to his original bad decision, the writer of 2 Samuel concludes chapter 11 with these ominous words, the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. As horrible as David's adultery was, his subsequent choices compounded the problem. Rather than deal with his sin, David allowed his unconfessed actions to become part of his past. Some might argue, but didn't David eventually repent? Yes, by God's grace, he did. But David, had David repented immediately, Uriah would still be alive, among other things. By refusing to repent, by making additional wrong choices, he significantly worsened his situation. But he too, indeed, did return to the Lord, as we saw a few weeks ago, and the Lord restored him to, as he would later do for Peter. I want you to notice... That when David finally does come, he's made matters worse. He's running. He does that for a year. But when God finally grabs him and brings him back through the prophet Nathan, exposing his sin to him, David is cut to the heart. And I want you to notice David's confession in Psalm number 51. He says this. Taking full responsibility, not rationalizing or blame shifting, he says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Notice it's me. It's my sin. It's my transgressions. And then that goes on. He says, wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Not anybody else. 
Now, why was this woman out there tempting me? So it's her fault. Why wasn't my wife around more so I wouldn't be tempted? None of that. It's my sin. It's me. I did it. But then the pronouns shift to focus on the Lord. David says, against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, it's remarkable given that he sinned against Bathsheba, that he sinned against Uriah, that he sinned against really the entire nation as he was supposed to be an example and a model to them, but ultimately sins against God. And he recognizes that as as Peter did belatedly, but finally Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Ultimately, this is about you, God. What's God got to do with it? David's answer is everything. And so he repents accordingly. David was able to do this after running for a year when he remembered his God, and instead of running away, he ran to him. And like the prodigal son, The father not only waited for David to return, the father ran to meet him, as it were. And the great news is he'll do the same for you. So here's your take-home truth. Neither sin nor circumstances should lead the Christian to despair because God is always at work. And now, friends, we are going to bow together and go before this God. This gracious and forgiving and restoring God. And in every group, there are two categories of people. There are the saved and the unsaved. In biblical language, there are believers and unbelievers. There are those who have a relationship with God through Jesus and those who don't. Two categories of people. And so as we bow and pray, if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if you're not saved, if you've not been born again, then you need that justifying forgiveness that God will grant for the asking. You go to him from your heart to God and you confess to him that I realize I'm a sinner and I recognize that Jesus has died on the cross for my sin. Repent. God, I'm going to go your way and not my way. And You receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. You bow before him as your Lord. For the rest who do know the Lord But we fail to deal with our sin. Having been reminded that he is forgiving and restoring. Let's go to him with our sin and cast it upon him. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for meeting with us. Thank you for allowing us the privilege, undeserved though it be, of meeting with you and hearing from you. Lord, we thank you for what you reveal in your word about who you are. And how you respond to the cries of your people who are convicted of sin. Lord, although we are your children and although you are changing us, we still struggle with sin, every one of us. And Lord, we will do that until you return or you take us home. And then we are fully made into the image of the Lord Jesus. But until that time, we struggle, we sin. Lord, help us to remember We can't cover it ourselves, but Jesus has covered it by his blood. Help us to readily and often go to him for forgiveness of sin, to cast it upon him so that we can be used as Peter was used, as David was later used. 
Lord, I pray for anyone who came into this room without knowing you through the Lord Jesus. I ask you to draw them to yourself. May they embrace the gospel message and the Savior that's central to it. And may together we bring you glory by being repenting people. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.